Hey everyone, and welcome to the 41st episode of The Liam McCollum Show. I talked with my friend David Herbst, the state director with Americans for Prosperity Montana, about how he thinks liberty is doing here in our great state. I asked him about how he thinks Gianforte has done so far as governor, and we talk about some legislation that has passed this session and some bills that are still going through. We also get into a little bit about the history of nuclear energy in Montana and how the state can take the lead in making healthcare more affordable. There are some images that I embedded in the video, so if you're interested, please go over to YouTube and check the interview out over there. I'm starting to do most of my interviews in that format, so if you prefer that medium, please check it out. But I still am on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and YouTube. Remember to like, share, subscribe, and give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Here's the interview. All right, well, David, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Do you want to just introduce yourself really quick? Yeah. My name is David Herbst. I'm the state director with Americans for Prosperity Montana. That's cool. all there is to it. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And then uh, I brought you on kind of just to cover the prospect of liberty progress here um, through the legislature. It's the first Republican governor. And do you know how long? 16 years. 16 years. Yeah. That's, that's really impressive. So brought you on to kind of cover what we're doing here, what you guys are doing at AFP. Mm-hmm. Um, but first off, how do you think the governor has been with with his approach to liberty as well as just the legislature in general yeah thanks um you know so we're still kind of seeing how the current governor is going to go about being governor i mean we do have you know the question of covid uh his reaction to covid and how he's managing the covid situation um that's but that's a pretty narrow bandwidth um like kind of signal but we also have his work on regulatory reform, which we're really big fans of. Uh, he has loosened the rules around COVID, although it hasn't been very aggressive so far. Uh, we would have liked to see more of those top-down rules come down faster, but he has come our way in a lot of that, and that's a, that's a good sign. Uh, the other one is regulatory reform, and, and that is one area where we're really excited. He's, he's pulled together a new regulatory reform commission led up by the Lieutenant Governor Juris. Uh, and that is to go back and kind of comb through all the regulations in Montana's regulatory code, which is uh, very large. Imagine 6, 000, or 5 million words, 60,000 pages long. That's how big our regulatory code is. And so what happens is, and for, for folks who aren't familiar with how state government works, it's not too dissimilar from federal government, just on a different scale. You have the legislature writes what's called the Montana Code Annotated, MCA, which is the, the law of the land. And then you have the regulatory agencies, which is what's called the ARM or uh, Administrative Regulatory Measures, which what those do is that those are the implementation of the code. The ARM itself is 5 million words long. It is huge. So uh, the, they're looking through the, the regulatory commission is there to look through that, audit what works and what doesn't, and then start reforming and, and, and kind of doing what they can to, uh, to reduce that. Um, very positive piece of legislation, uh, or not piece of legislation, effort from the governor. It's just a unilateral effort from him uh, that has been duplicated in other area, states like uh, Wisconsin. It was a key part of Walker's agenda, uh, Idaho, and uh, Wyoming, and, 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 and across the Dakotas. Cool. To talk about bills that have gone through, I know it's there haven't actually been a lot of bills that have gone through yet, but mm-hmm. regarding those bills that have gone through, has there been any progress? Yeah, so we have um, we have a one bill on COVID liability that AFP supported, which has been signed by the governor. Specifically, what it says is if you're a business and you're you you know in good faith follow the rules, uh, you can't be civil sued for uh, following the rules, right? If the health board says you got to do X, Y, and Z, and you do those things in good faith to your best of your ability, a person can't come in and then use a civil suit to damage your business if they get COVID or they get injured or something like that. Beyond that, there hasn't been that much else. And that's, and that's by design. The Montana legislature is every two years for 90 days. It has what's called a transmittal prog- process, which is that a bill starts in the House, it has to get to a certain place by a certain time over to the Senate, otherwise it dies by transmittal. Different bills with different characteristics, such as bills with appropriations, have different transmittal deadlines. So all the bills with no appropriations have already had their transmittal deadline. So a whole bunch of bills just died because they didn't make it through the other chamber. And so we're really on the second half of the legislative session now, and that's when we'll really see, start to see bills pass or, or, or succeed or fail in the opposite chamber. Also, what tends to happen is because of the kind of initial rush, there's often a, um, the first chamber a bill starts out is usually not as well vetted. 
right? Because there's just not that much time to really get a grip of what's going on, especially when you have 3,000 bills in 90 days, right? 3,000 potential bills, right? And they're not going to see that many, but still you're going to see a lot of bills. So um, the what often happens is that your more opposition will come in in the latter chamber, whatever that is. So you start on the Senate, you're going to have a little bit easier time because your opposition might not see the bill coming. And then by the time it gets to the past transmittal, they'll have time to actually have been pulled together in opposition to your bill. You'll have a little bit more difficulty. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing across all of our bills. Yeah. And with that COVID liability bill, um, was that kind of behind the push? I, I think I heard that Gianforte wanted that bill to go through before he opened up. Right. That's, that was kind of part of the deal with, uh, with leadership. Okay. Regarding the bills that are currently going through, what are, what are AFP's top priorities? Yeah. So we have emergency powers reform, in which case we have two key bills. Uh, one addresses the you know, the, the governor's powers and kind of constraining how emergency powers work on the state level. And the other one is a comprehensive bill uh, addressing the local issues, specifically health boards, sheriffs, and kind of the relationship between democracy and the technocracy we live in once we have an emergency powers declaration, kind of redrawing that balance. And that's, that's really where our focus was. There was a ton of COVID bills this year or our focus was at was primarily on the bills that would mo that would reshape the landscape of accountability and the democratic process as a republic where we're saying even if it's an emergency you know and we try not to undermine the next emergency response that could be possible right so for example if there's an emergency the local county health board can react but within a certain amount of time it has to go back and get some kind of approval from someone who's actually elected uh, the, uh, they can't just fire the sheriff, uh, if they feel like the sheriff isn't doing well enough. Montana code actually gave them that power for an unelected bureaucrat to be able to fire a duly elected sheriff. That's a problem we, lots it, of stuff like that in our state levels was kind of a similar effort. And I believe that's just one line, right? It just says that mm -hmm. the Montana health board can fire a sheriff. Yeah. A, a health official. Right. So different counties have different systems. Some some have a health board, some have a single health official, it just kind of depends. But either way, the people who are empowered by that section of code uh, had really broad powers. In Montana, that goes all the way back to our territorial laws and rules. Right. This goes way back to when we were a territory. Um, the, it's called the Bannock uh, uh, Constitution. And this is a kind of like the leftover. So we've reformatted our constitution three different times. We have the original constitution, the territorial constitution, the 1972 constitution. So that's held through through all these different things. And then finally, we had a crisis big enough where people were like, whoa, wait a minute. People have no voice. And mm -hmm. how do we make sure that they have a voice that they can, you know, and, and I think one of the best arguments that we have is as a, as a right-wing group that works with left-wingers and right-wingers all the time, works with libertarians and conservatives, um, specifically is that, hey, look, if you're really concerned about compliance, this is the best bill you can have in response to COVID. Because if, if people have a voice, they're much more likely to take seriously the thing that they're being told to do. Mm. If they feel like they're being forced on them with no voice to be able to push back and actually be in dialogue with, people are much more likely just to say, screw it and, and just disobey the system. Yeah. Um, if, laws, if you want laws to be respected, you have to make them respectable. You have to make a process that's respectable. So, you know, the emergency powers focus tends to be there for us, uh, but we've supported other ones in other areas as well. And specifically, um, I know that you guys are trying to reform like some of the powers that the governor has. What are some of those things? So for us, uh, we, we, we have a thing where it's basically says the current, the current process could involve the legislature, but in order for the legislature to get involved with an emergency declaration or to refine it or to change something about it, they have to call an entire session together. Now, when you have an infectious disease, you're going to call a whole bunch of representatives who are all mostly over the age of 50 to come together into a small building to work out the differences. That just didn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it didn't. And, and honestly, we didn't really have the capabilities or much knowledge about how to run a remote session before COVID. Now that's different. But on top of that, we also built in um, a key provision. So basically right now how it's written. The, the governor can declare a state of emergency. And as long as there's a presidential state of emergency, it can go on forever, right? As long as the feds are willing to do it, we can do it. Yep. What this would do is say within 45 days of a governor um, uh, declaring a state of emergency in Montana, regardless of whatever the feds are doing, he has to go to the legislature and get a confirming vote by poll or by a legislative session. That poll is a really important thing. So what that does is it reduces the cost to get a democratic check on this process. 
specifically a small democracy check, right? Rather than being elected by a million Montanans, instead is going to be elected by the, the mm -hmm. 20,000 to, you know, to 3,000 people that, that are in the electoral uh, in the election universe for a uh, House member or Senate member, so the um, so that 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 Democratic check part of it happens at forty five days, and then it happens by reverse poll. And what I mean by that is rather so in the current process, and we do this polling process for veto override. So what happens a lot in Montana session is at the very end of the session, all the bills will go to the governor. The governor then either holds onto those bills to the end of the session or starts signing them. Usually after session's over, one session is over. Uh, and there's called what's called signy die. The session then the veto overrides happen by mail ballot. And when someone doesn't return a mail ballot, so say uh, governor vetoes a bill. Uh, a great example. Last time, last a couple of years ago, the, the governor Bullock vetoed our campus free speech bill. When that happened, that was after the session was over. So the secretary of state put out these mail ballots to legislators, and legislators then had to return it to say if they can get sixty percent they can overturn the governor's veto. We ran an effort trying to get it because we got we got really great support for campus free speech across both houses of groups. If we would have got the same support in the in the in the override, we would have gotten it. We would have won. But a tremendous amount of legislators totally check out. Right. They they leave the state. You know, they've been they've been going hardcore for four months. They're not interested in the in veto override, much less the dynamics with Democrats and campus free speech and the, and the mm -hmm. Democratic governor. So what typically happens is those ballots are usually done. If you don't submit it, it's a no against campus reason. Our bill, if you don't submit the ballot on a on a on a emergency powers declaration, it's a vote in the emergency powers declaration. So they have to engage. The important part of that is the governor is the biggest lobbyist in the state, mm -hmm. right? His relationship with the legislature is the most lobbied and most important of any you know outside group outside of the actual legislature itself. So he needs to make sure that he's doing his due diligence to convince legislators that this is the right, you know, dose of effort and in detail so that they, you know, don't veto override uh, a legislative, uh, uh, an emergency powers declaration. Yeah. So uh, just a technical question then is, um, and to clarify, if they're not in session, then they will be mailed ballots. Right. They'll be what's called a polling process. Exactly. And it can happen digitally now, too. They can do it by email. Sure. So and then, yeah, you you referenced the free speech bills. Do you want to talk about your your current push, AFP's push through the legislature right now? Sure. So Concerned Veterans for America is our specific uh, um, uh, communities that we build, uh, you know, using veteran voices with veterans leading the helm uh, to organize for a free and open society within the veteran community. So you have these veterans all over Montana who fought, signed up and fought to serve for their country and the principles that this country was founded on. CVA exists to uh, organize in those communities and then help mobilize them so that they can continue to fight for the constitution, for limited government and the, and the principles that they believe in. Um, they, they've, this year, they have two bills, to, or sorry, three bills that they're working on the Montana legislature, uh, an emergency powers declaration, or sorry, a, a war declaration bill for the federal level. Uh, we can talk about it's a it's a great resolution, mm -hmm. and I know you're interested in that topic. Uh, and then uh, we ha they have two campus free speech bills, and this is done in collaboration with AFP because we have all the lobby experience. They've typically been more federally focused, um, but yeah, these are all veterans who you know love the First Amendment, uh, want to be able to speak on campuses, would go and fight in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then come back and then see on campus that they didn't really have full First Amendment rights. Mm -hmm. So basically what the bills do, we have one bill that's uh, is very similar to a bill that we ran in AFP last time that got vetoed by the governor. Uh, what that bill does is it is a um, it, it, it is kind of the broadest ways and means bill. So there's all kinds of student code rules that say kind of when you can talk, where you can talk, what you can talk about, stuff like that. Um, this this very restraints and controls that process is like, no, 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 no. The First Amendment is what it says, and you can't have outside of these ways and means, very specific ways and means, kind of regulations and rules, um, uh, uh, limitations on speech. Mm -hmm. What that means, you can, they can say you can't have a blowhorn in the library. What they can't say is there's only one place on campus where you could talk called the free speech zone, and, and this bill effectively bans that. It also has some great measurements. Uh, it closes the graduation loophole, which is a really important piece. Uh, th this is a great one. If, if you're at all skeptical of government, this is one of the best 
you know, government using its own powers to aggrandize itself. So the, 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 the state colleges are quasi government institutions, right? They charge tuition, but they're all bound up in government through all kinds of giant checks from the state. So what, what they do when they're found um, violating a student's free speech is they pretty much just wait. Like they just kind of delay the, the court case. Uh, if there, if there is a court case, usually there is, and most students will just take it or go to a different school or whatever. Mm -hmm. But if a student like tries to push back and sue them, it says that if once, once the student graduates, so they just wait around three or four years, the student graduates, they then argue, well, he's not a student anymore. So he can't be injured by our policy. So therefore it's not an injury. Um, even though it happened and they did have their speech suppressed. So, uh, what this says, it closes that loophole and says, no, 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 no. Even if they're no longer a student, they still are damaged by a suppression of their speech. Uh, and it has some stuff about kind of educating freshmen uh, and new students about their free speech rights and the free speech policies on campus. And then there's some accountability measures to the Montana legislature specifically saying, if there's an incident of uh, you know, a free speech violation, the campuses have to report that to the legislature because the legislature spends hundreds of millions of dollars sometimes on these universities. And, uh, and they don't have any accountability for how good they're doing in, in, uh, in free speech issues. So we're making that accountability happen. Yeah. And is that policy under Title IX? Do you know? No. So if, if Title IX, and I'm not an expert in Title IX stuff. Um, I don't think so, but I could be wrong about that. I think it's the one. The well, you mean that policy? You mean the, like the checks? Like what I'm talking about? What I'm talking about? No, no, no. Uh, well, some of that might be related to that. But no, no, no. no. I'm just talking on the state level, not okay. federal. Right. The state level, the our university system gets a large amounts of money, not to mention bonding money and infrastructure money. So every infrastructure product. Okay. So there'll be an infrastructure bill, right? And it'll be like a sewer system for Glendive, mm -hmm. you know, because they got a new rush of people in Glendive due to the Bakken or um, a new, you know, outhouse for Glacier National Park or something like that, or, or, or some state park or something like that. And then it'll be Romney Hall for Montana State University, like in the time, like a whole building to house students. Yeah. Right. Um, it, it's those kind of things that happen off the taxpayer dollars. This is what a bond is. I mean, it's basically a credit card, you know, a government credit card swipe with your name on it for you to pay taxes on in the future, mm -hmm. uh, where they charge interest and all that kind of stuff. Now, whether it's wise or not, that's a different issue, but it definitely blurs the line about the, the government the government agency that doesn't isn't actually government that is the the public campuses yeah so. the university has kind of pushed back on that or they have in the past what what have their objections been you mean on the campus free speech issue yeah so some of the arguments have been um that there's that it's a non-issue that these aren't violations that happen uh after our last bill uh which was house bill three uh, 735 in 2019 Montana State University, no, sorry, the University of Montana ended their free speech zone. So some of the people take this bill and they'll just say, well, all this is is free speech zone. It does a lot more than just free speech zones, like mm -hmm. writers loophole, educating students, you know, making ways and means, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot more to the bill than that. And we have a second bill we have to discuss on, on free association. But what, the, what they'll typically say is there's no issue. Uh, all, we have great free speech campus codes. No, no student has any problems. And then we'll bring in a student who's like, yeah, they threatened to arrest me at University of Montana. Uh, yeah, there's still a free speech zone, even after they've supposedly repealed it at University of Montana. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Young Americans for Liberty chapter president was at U of M trying to help out start a student group there and got harassed, right? Mm -hmm. So um, by an administrator who was telling them that there was still a free speech zone. So either they're not doing their job, not educating their staff, or there's one, but it's informal, which is just as bad as yeah. a formal free speech zone. And I believe that the original policy was left up to ASUM, the student body. Mm -hmm. Essentially what this, what this piece of legislation does is like, it says that these institutions being that they're public, they collect taxes from the state of Montana and can't discriminate, discriminate against certain types of speech. So it's like, it's not even in the hands of the ASUM to do that. Right. Well, and it's it's kind of funny because once again, they aren't quite public institutions either because they're also charged tuition and right. student fees, which is an even more interesting issue because student fees themselves are by definition, the student's money 
that they pay to fund things like ASUM or the Student Union Association or the student group money that is supposedly collected and then dueled out for student groups to be able to do their thing with campus resources. So mm-hmm. it's it's interesting to me that the we, we, we put this thing, and, and from a libertarian point of view, we put these things into this really vague status about whether it's private or public, and then it makes everything a public policy debate. There is no private or public policy debate about how Rocky Mountain runs their free speech you know, uh, uh, policy, other than the contract that goes along with that. So for example, Rocky Mountain has a contract that says, we, if you go to our campus, we are a free speech campus. We believe in free speech. We are not going to oppress your point of view. Mm-hmm. And they agree to that contract up front so that you know what you're buying into. Mm-hmm. Well, when uh, recently, not too long ago, uh, there was a pro-life effort uh, from the Students for Pro-Life at Rocky Mountain. And they wanted to put up some signs and the campus said, no, you can't put those up. Those are offensive. People might not like them. And they cited some part of their code that said, you know, we want to foster a good environment for students. And then what the Rocky Mountain students said was like, no, 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 you have an agreement with us. We will sue you because you're breaking your contract. Mm-hmm. And then Rocky Mountain reformed their process and their policies, right, to be more upfront about what it is. Yeah. Uh, and that was to allow the students to be able to talk about life issues. Now, this is a Christian campus concerned about, you know, life issues. And that's because we do have a culture now that values, you know, kind of people's comfort in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but that but that that the way the reason why things go the way they are is because these are quasi government institutions. Yeah, and I actually talked about that with um, actually in my previous episode with Professor Gerard Casey. He was mm. talking about how like, um, you know, if it is if it is a private institution, it can determine its rules. But mm-hmm. um, these public institutions at least stand behind the theory of public education, yet mm-hmm. they they aren't. And in the theory, the theory seems to say that public institutions are non-excludable, right? Like the reason we need public institutions is because private institutions can exclude people from their premises. Mm -hmm. But then it gets involved and it's charging students certain fees. It's also using the government as an arm. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's all confused. But um, to move on, what about the freedom of association bill? Yeah, so uh, we have these broken into separate bills, although often in some states they've been combined. Uh, because the, the Freedom Ways and Means Bill had a lot of support last time. We wanted to maintain a coalition we built with the American Civil Liberties Union here mm-hmm. in Montana around that bill. And then we brought in this other bill, which was, you know, the last bill would never have got, at least the other one had a chance for the governor to sign, but this one, the governor never would have even taken a first look at. And essentially what it says is that freedom of association isn't just that you get to pick who joins your group. You also get to define who isn't in your group, right? So if you're the Sunni Muslim group on campus, you can say, hey, we're Sunni Muslims. You got to agree to this doctrinal you know, definition of what it means to be Sunni. So if you're the Sunni Muslim group, you can, you can define what that means. And then if a Shia Muslim or an atheist wants to join, you say, hey, look, you can come to our meetings, uh, but you can't lead the group, mm-hmm. right? Because you're not one of, you're not the group, you know, which is, sounds like common sense, unless you are um, of a particular ideological persuasion. Or if you think that these are purely public institutions, the interesting thing about this is this is always, always a debate about student fees and what are they? So if you go to the campus, uh, you, you know, would guess that this quasi public private thing is a private institution. And the fact that they get to decide what to teach, decide what to do, there's no government oversight of that other than the Board of Regents, which has tremendous insulation from any kind of legislative process usually. Uh, and lack of interference from any kind of requirements to the government uh, for all the money that it gets. But then you would also find that there is a, um, you know, all these fees that they stack on top of your tuition that supposedly go to fund student government, fund the student groups. That is your giving the money to the money to them and then giving the money back to you. That to us means that that's not public money. That's your own money given back to your own student group. And given that, that you're in that role, that quasi private, quasi public situation, that you should have the right to be able to define who's your group. If you're the libertarian group on campus and you know some neoconservative wants to run your show, uh, you should all say, no, dude, you, you don't. You, like, you got to get into the nap or you're not part of our group. That's okay. And the same thing if you're a progressive group or if you're pro-choice or, or whatever. The other part of the bill is a harassment provision. Um, some student 
behavior codes, some student codes specifically have too broad a definition for harassment. So what we do is we draw on the Supreme Court's definition for harassment and, and, and use that to make that just more robust to make sure that you can't say, oh, they're harassing me and that harassment is actually just legitimate political speech. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, uh, FIRE has written about Montana's abuse of this and there is significant concern specifically, I, feel, I believe it was Montana Tech and how broad their harassment code's written, which is pretty much if, if I don't like the speech, it's harassment, which is a real problem. Yeah, dang. You you referenced the other bill that you partnered with. Does this bill, does the foreign policy bill come only from concerned veterans or are you guys? Well, I mean, America's Prosperity supports them on what they're doing. Um, but yeah, C- CVA is definitely the lead, especially in the foreign policy space, because they're the experts in this area. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd like to dabble, but it's just not as I'm not. No, I'm, I'm never going to be able to tell as compelling of a story as Chris does as mm-hmm. both as a you know Purple Heart and former Marine or I mean, start former Army. Uh, he's, he's going to be able to tell a much more compelling story about it, but broadly what the, what the, what the effort does, what it says is, um, that's a message from the Montana government to the federal government saying, Hey, you guys got to take back your, your, your war powers. It matters to us whether or not Congress has declared war. Mm -hmm. We've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. The mission is over. We need to get out. Uh, unless you want to declare another war, another mission, in which case, you know, ante up and actually do your job. Um, and it asks for a repeal of the uh, authorization for the use of military force and some kind of reform that will put Congress back into the seat of driving our foreign policy when it comes to the question of war. Yeah. And I read some statistic. Is it the first time a state, like if it passes, it'll be the first time a state has ever done this? I do not know that. I, I know other states have considered this. I know Idaho considered a, some, some specific legislation a couple of years ago that was similar to this. Um, it's important to remember that this is not uh, uh, this is not legislation in the sense of like it's not going to add to the Montana Code. It is a resolution. It's a it's essentially a collective letter. Yeah, yeah. Because I I mean either way it is a big deal for the state to call upon the national government to do this um yeah absolutely and there there are bills that are like uh, that are like preserve the guard and stuff like that that are supported by other groups uh mm-hmm. we have not engaged in those ones that would specifically say montana refuses to send our national guard uh to um wherever the president's going with this particular syria or whatever um and I've had that is not the same as this legislation yeah, and if people are interested in that, I, I, I've had the president of that organization on my podcast before. Mm-hmm. And I'll that. Um, but yeah, I, I know that you yourself, you're interested in energy and nuclear energy. Is there, has there been any work in Montana regarding energy and reforming regulations and stuff? Yeah, exactly. So this, this legislation, this, we got two pieces of legislation moving on energy that I think are really exciting. I'm not the expert on energy policy. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm kind of a jack of all trades. Energy policy is by far the one most obscure and difficult to kind of jump in on from like a free market perspective. Um, Because so much of this is defined by the natural monopoly problems that go along with energy issues. But interestingly, in Montana, we had a piece of code that happened. So back in the 1970s, there was they were looking at putting in a nuclear power plant in Montana that would effectively service using Montana water and resources, uh, service nuclear power for uh, the West Coast. Um, What happened was we had the coal-fired power plant being built out in Coal Strip and a new nuclear plant being planned. A legislator who was uh, a very opposed nuclear power because, you know, should man tamper with the natural elements of nature, you know, uh, the fears about nuclear power and nuclear weapons and things like that um, passed a bill that would require any new nuclear power plant to be approved by the voters, to have to be approved by ballot initiative. So using direct democracy to effectively do that. And the, and they, and the guess was, and they're effectively correct, that that would kill nuclear power in Montana until something could be done about it, until that piece of code could be repealed. Um, so what this bill does is it deregulates nuclear power. And the biggest regulatory burden on nuclear power in Montana is the requirement that any new nuclear plan has to be submitted to the people of Montana as a plan. And basically what that means is if you're an investor, uh, I, I can't just have a new fourth generation nuclear power plant I'm excited about in a market to serve customers. I also have to get approval from a bunch of people who don't even live next to it, who don't 
have anything to do with it other than that they live in the same state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, and then I have to, I have to win a campaign, right. Um, to all those voters that increases the cost of entry significantly reduces the, you know, increases the, the risk and reduces the, uh, the incentive for any entrepreneur or business that is interested in nuclear power, which is a critical part of, you know, if, especially, especially if you're concerned about carbon, if you're very concerned about carbon in the atmosphere, nuclear power is your best friend because it's base load. It doesn't require a ton of lithium, which is expensive. And you want to put that in cars. You don't want to just store that into a giant battery warehouse and use that when there isn't any wind or solar, because you want that to go to cars because lithium is portable, mm-hmm. right? Unlike nuclear, which is harder to put a nuclear power plant in a car, right? So you have a big nuclear power plant that can then provide that base load because when there's low solar or there's low wind, which happens in a place like Montana, um, at times you're just going to, you got to need someone to, to power the lights. If it's not going to be nuclear, then it's going to be coal or coal-fired power gas. And that gets me to the other part of it. Coal Strip was a bunch, has, has three different power plants kind of built kind of right next to it, three generation units mm. that go all the way back to the 1940s and 30s. Those are getting old and they're starting to get decommissioned, especially as natural gas outcompetes coal. There's just, they're just not as economic as they used to be. So the second bill that we have will study uh, leveraging fourth generation nuclear power in coal strips specifically. And, and, but, you know, Montana generally, but I know coal strips going to be a bigger part of that and mm-hmm. how to leverage that. Cause you have a ton of transmission lines, a ton of capacity, a bunch of talent when it comes to boiler makers and um, um, labor there in coal strip and a industry that in the West coast, they don't want a bunch of coal. They want, they want green energy. So how do we, if, if there, if there's going to be an investment there, uh, nuclear makes the most amount of sense because you just can't design wind to turn when there's no wind or some solar to shine when there's no there's no sun. Now, are there any other bills that you think we should focus on? Before? Absolutely. So we got we got key legislation in regulatory reform and education reform you should know about. Uh, regulatory reform, uh, two bills. We have one bill that is a called the Fresh Start Act. This is a really great, it's kind of based upon the Mercatus concept. To, to look at all the regulations that were suspended during the, la- during the COVID-19 crisis last year mm-hmm. and then say, okay, if we suspend this to respond to a crisis, why do we need it during normal times, right? So uh, this establishes a, a, a commission of legislators and uh, representative from the governor and representatives from the public to be able to look through these regulations and then recommend which regulations uh, should be brought back and which regulations we should eliminate. That will happen over the next two years to study. Now, one of the interesting, 130 regulations in Montana were were suspended, we think. But the implementation on code to write a bill just to repeal all those would be enormous. It would take months just to just Mm -hmm. to write it because there's some, because how you write legislation is referenced to all these different parts of code, right? And the MCA is so large, it would take a long time to actually fully pull those out and that's what this bill will do is we'll look at that design legislation to specifically on what to keep and what to what to get rid of. Uh, that just recently passed the House uh, right before transmittal. Um, the other one is the Regulatory Reins Act. Now, the Reins Act is one of the coolest pieces. If you're a conservative, you're a libertarian, one of the coolest pieces of legislation you can have. Because since Woodrow Wilson, <laughs> we've had this problem of the of the of the executive branch's growth and capability to rule us without any kind of democratic input. It's what separates us from you know the the pre to post Enlightenment vision of America, mm-hmm. right? So like the Enlightenment vision was that you have these citizens who get together and decide as a people what rules they're going to live under, right? That differentiated us from the king. But then Woodrow Wilson comes on and says like, well. Yeah, that's old school, right? We got the new school. We're in the progressive era now, so we're going to have scientific management of a, of the economy of the of the of the population mm-hmm. of the of the society um, from the executive branch, which became the regulatory agencies, right? So Montana being a progressive state, we have a lot of latitude we've given to our regulatory agencies, and we're a part-time legislature that only meets every two years. So we've done a lot. We've given a lot to the executive as it is. We're very much executive heavy state. So what the RAINS Act does is it says regulatory agencies, you could do what you want. You could look at these regulations, but you have to run an economic impact study. Right now, they are completely optional. (laughs) Unless they're mandated by 15 legislators writing a letter, 
or by a particular interim committee, uh, they can just pass laws without knowing it. In fact, that's mostly what they did. In fact, when we came up with this bill, we got a big fiscal note because they now they no longer assume in their budget that they're going to have to run any economic impact studies. Get this. The Department of Health and Human Services in Montana passed 40 rules last year, probably impacting greater than a million dollars, all of them. Yeah. In the last four years, the Department of Environmental Quality has passed 34 rules, right? Not a single one did they analyze the economic impact of. What are the objections to that then? Like, why wouldn't... They don't want to be held accountable. <laughs> they don't want to... They don't, I mean, like... So don't be wrong. I'm sure the current governor is going to implement more of a more careful approach to these regulatory mm -hmm. regimes. You know, this is the legacy of Governor Bullock, uh, who, who, I mean, didn't care that much about that sort of thing. But I mean, what Reigns Act says is that they have to run an economic impact study. And then two, if that economic impact estimates a greater than a million dollars impact on the economy, it has to be confirmed by the legislature. They can't just pass that. You need the legislature to weigh in. They passed this in, in Wisconsin. So Wisconsin was one of the, you know, it was the California of the Midwest, right? They had a ton of regulations, a ton of giant regulations. So to kind of parallel, parallel population adjusted, we have much higher regulations than almost all of our neighbors, right? Um, Wisconsin had a tremendous amount of regulations and still do. So mm -hmm. they implemented a look back, a regulatory review act, and then they implemented a RAINS Act to kind of control that going forward. And what it's done is it said, you know, what, what bureaucracies now do is they say, is this going to have an economic impact before they pass the regulation? And then if it's, if it's above that threshold, become a major regulation, they then are very careful about whether or not they want to do it. And they analyze the alternatives and they look at how they can save money. That's a good incentive for bureaucracies to take and definitely an incentive I think the governor would support. So the large, the large kind of scale of it is just, you know, the agencies, they like being able to do stuff without having to be held accountable. Uh, they don't want to have to argue to the legislature what they are doing and why. Mm -hmm. uh, and this would require them to if the economic impact was substantial. Do you, I'm just curious, do you know any of the regulations that were pulled back during COVID? Oh, yeah, a ton of them. Uh, so, for example, um, telemedicine, we had privacy rules specifically that prevented telemedicine. Mm -hmm. uh, we had uh, rules like, for example, like you can't do curbside pickup of alcohol. Um, there's uh, there's a ton of other ones. I, I'm struggling to remember them all off the top yeah. of my head. But yeah, that was, a, that was a big one in Laurel. It definitely affected my hometown because I like businesses were finally able to like sell liquor out of their mm -hmm. out of their stores. And it, it was a big boom. Yeah. Alcohol laws have a crazy history in Montana. We have very conflicted views about alcohol for a Western state mm -hmm. uh, compared to Washington, Oregon, things like that. Like we, we really have a lot of constraints. It's, it's kind of strange. Um, another prohibition era legacy sort of thing. The, uh, and, and progressive era thing. Representative Katie Zolnikov has their own bill specifically about alcohol. So even if the Fresh Start Act doesn't shake out, which I think it will, but if it doesn't, that will pass this legislative session. I'm almost positive. Cool. Uh, we have reforms on telemedicine and a couple other key healthcare, uh, you know, healthcare free market reforms that we're also working on. Uh, direct primary care, certificate of need, and uh, uh, doctors being able to sell to patients directly. Yeah, that's awesome. I've actually been listening to a bunch of podcasts about those things. Um, about the certificate of need like can you just explain why that would be so great and yeah so under care? right so the the certificate of need what that says is that if you um say you're a you're a local hospital and uh and i'm a, a competitor and i want to come in and i want to offer a new ambulatory service or something like that in the area that you already service as the hospital in that area before i can set up shop i have to go to my the public service commission, which is a monopoly regulator and say, Hey, I want to set up shop in this area. And then you get to show up as the resident hospital and say, this is why there's no need for him to. So I have to get my certificate of need from the monopoly regulator, even though that that process itself is actually what establishes you as a monopoly. That's how our system works for medical uh, garbage collection and a couple other industries, taxis, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, it's kind of absurd. It actually, it's the, the entire system creates monopolies in the name of trying to prevent monopolies. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. And then uh, with direct primary care, 
what, what does that do? Does it get rid of regulations that pre prevent people from setting up direct primary care hospital? Because I know that we have direct primary care here. Yeah, kind of. So before, before um, Auditor Rosendale, now, now Congressman Rosendale, uh, made an administrative rule change that said, if you're a doctor providing services to an individual, you're not insurance. That's all the rule change said. So the, the way things go in, in government is they'll write something that's meant to apply to insurance. And they'll write it in such a way that it looks like anytime there's a commercial interaction between two individuals, right, that have to do with healthcare. So it was in a regulatory gray space and then became a regulatory white space, but it was only for direct primary, primary care meaning you and your doctor, right? It, you're, you're, um, it wasn't you and your physical therapist, wasn't you and your dentist, it wasn't you and the hand doctor that you see three times a month. It was mm -hmm. you and your primary care physician. What the new bill does is it, it creates this you know, safe harbor is what we call it. It's a specific area in code saying, if you as an individual want to have a commercial relationship with any healthcare provider at all, whatever, eye, ears, specialist, ambulatory service, whatever, a hospital, mm -hmm. anyone can just say, you want to offer a subscription service, you can do that, period. That's what it does. It's actually, one of the really cool things about that, the bill, well, although it started out as a direct primary care issue, has exploded into a direct care issue that spans all of medicine. It will basically allow the most radical free market you know, alternative in the country, potentially, in the direct relationship reform space. Yeah. And what that ends up looking like is um, these doctors actually tell their patients what prices are before they, they go. Right. Or they pay a subscription and it, they end up, I, I heard one statistic, like, I forget where they're out of, but sometimes their prices are 90% less than what like doctors or insurance companies um, charge in places like Wyoming, mm -hmm. where they only have one insurance provider. Mm -hmm. Exactly. They, the, um, it, it looks like this, like a, like a Netflix subscription, like something else. I can go to the doctor and just say, hey, how much it costs? And they say 60 bucks a month. And that's, and then I get unlimited access to that doctor. I can text them. They go to my house. It's a much more dynamic commercial relationship. Like you would with any other service industry, a carpenter, you know, whatever you're providing a retainer fee for their time. And then you're paying for it up front. And then once that, then their service to you is in a competitive marketplace. So if you don't like it, you go someplace else. And then if you need that x-ray or something like that, it's often cheaper there too, because they have negotiated rates with certain providers. So they say, Oh, go here and it'll be, and you can pay in cash. And then most people who take advantage of direct care, you know, alternatives um, are the people who use healthcare the most, mm -hmm. right? The most often, or they're people who are willing to save a buck. So they usually have, um, they usually, they can be quite, quite a bit younger. And then they have a, a catastrophic insurance plan for the worst case scenario. They break, um, a, they tear a major, you know, an ACL or something like that. Yeah, definitely. That's exciting. I didn't know about that bill. Yeah. Um, and it actually plays into the certificate of need, like then that actually allows more competitors to come to the market. Mm -hmm. Right. And we're trying to make Montana the, the, the best healthcare market provision, you know, state in the country because we need it. I mean, Montana needs more providers. We need more supply. That's mm -hmm. how you decrease prices. Uh, and, you know, by being a place where you can come and set up the shop that you feel like services your customers best, customers are going to be served better. Definitely. Yeah. That's really exciting. Yeah. Well, um, I'm just curious if, if that's the last bill you want to talk about, if, if there's anyone or if there's anywhere that you think that maybe we lacked this year that AFP would like to focus on in, in later legislative sessions or maybe what you think Montana needs to focus on. Yeah, so we, we have some bills uh, that, that got shot down that we got to come back and, and, and figure out. Uh, specifically one on facial recognition technology. That was really, that's just a heartbreaker. Mm -hmm. um, it's a privacy bill. We have some real great privacy bills. I'm not, it's not all loss in privacy, um, but facial recognition technology is one of the ones that was very concerning for a lot of people and something that um, there needs to be government controls on because it's the kind of technology that in government's hand could be abused really badly. We discovered in committee in testimony, um, it's actually much cheaper just to write a bill and see what shakes out than it is to write a FOIA request. Because the government came out and basically said, yeah, well, we can't confirm that we're using this, but we don't want to pass this bill because if we were to use it, we wouldn't want to have to comply with it because it would make things difficult for us. 
which is like basically what it means is that if they want to scrape data across these agencies, they have to get a warrant. They have to actually have a particular suspicion. And then there was another one on uh, DNA and the use of DNA on privacy that that probably needs to get needs to get reworked and make sure that we have a good privacy protection so that we don't have bulk warrants for things like that in Montana. Um, lastly, we have some really more regulatory quick. reform stuff that we want to do uh, that we didn't really get to this time that I think we should return to specifically in sandboxing. Utah has an amazing bill. Basically, what it says. And this is a really exciting in, in, the, in the regulatory space. The bill says, if you want to start a new business, you can. You get a business license, you, you, you join the sandbox, right? Which is its own regulatory space. And it says, you can operate for two years. And if you're able to clear the market in those two years and have a successful business, then you have to then, you can then go comply with all the rest of the regulatory code. But none of the regulations apply to you over this period of time so that you can get your business started that kind of regulatory sandbox to kind of discover if there's, you know, constituencies, if there's consumers for these products. And then, you know, that has, you know, a, a negligible fee that goes along with the business license to then comply with it kind of puts us in a really great space for, you know, more startup culture, FinTech, so a financial in, information, or sorry, financial services uh, uh, industry, uh, you know, everything from cryptocurrency and figuring out new business that you could use with that, to uh, new ways to provide, you know, with uh, automatic care, um, whether it's algorithmic or with an actual robot, uh, more care, you know, for people in innovative business models. Um, all of those industries, all those kind of cutting industries, we want to attract them to Montana. And the, one of the best ways to do that would be a sandbox regulatory scheme, like what they just passed in Utah, which is just an amazing thing. Oftentimes, these sandboxes are like, if you're in the financial sector, if you're in like this very narrow slice, we're going to give you a sandbox. This is a generic industry agnostic sandbox. And at that point, I mean, you're, what you're looking at is saying, we're going to have a libertarian scenario for at least two years as you get your business started. Because we're going to assume that you're not starting your business to hurt anybody. We're mm -hmm. assuming that you're testing something out. You're experimenting to figure out what's out there in the marketplace. And after two years or four years or whatever the time period is then you can then start to comply with all the rest of the regulatory code. Don't yeah. be wrong. I'd like to get less regulatory code overall and we hope that happens, but the, um, the sandboxing is really probably the next frontier and whether we want to go next. That's super exciting. And is there legislation that you can draft from Utah then? Oh yeah. Well, we, we are, we are famously good at stealing from Utah. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So we stole their uh, privacy legislation this year. They have a really great uh, one on warrants and kind of further defining how uh, information and warrants work. Uh, that I think is very likely to pass. We have a constitutional amendment on privacy. Um, and, you know, we've got some other stuff that I think is going to happen probably next year. We, I'd like to see some more thorough tax reform. Mm -hmm. We have some real problem with property taxes in Montana. We didn't really get to. Uh, we have some stuff that are kind of playing with property taxes and a cut for income taxes, I think. I don't know if it will happen now. This new COVID stuff is all changing all that, but yeah, we'll see. Do you, do you guys ever deal with like legal tender laws and stuff like that? No, but I'm open to it. Um, I think I'm specific. Yeah, go ahead. I think we're not allowed to use gold as tender here. I think that's a federal law related to the 1913 um, specific implementation of the federal reserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, to define what the Federal Reserve issues as legal tender itself. I think that's federal, but I'm sure there, there might be, um, I think the Dakotas have some nullifying language. Uh, nullification is a very specific kind of legal theory yep. that you can try to implement to use state power to nullify federal power. Um, but it's not something that we particularly have played in yet, but I, I think I'm open to it. If, it. if a good argument can be made for the bill from our, our principal point of view, I'm, I'm open to, to engaging on it. I personally am very interested in monetary policy and what we can do in that space. I, I, I worry about inflation and all this COVID spending and what the secondary effects will be. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if states have the legal standing to be able to deal in that space, specifically because the constitution does give the power to the federal government to define yeah. what money is. Yeah, my, I mean, because I've researched it a little bit and I think there is just a little um, note that Montana has said about gold not being legal tender. I'll look at, look at it and maybe embed it in the video if there mm. is. Um, but my argument has been the constitution and the federal government has basically given up their end of the bargain when it comes to monetary policy. The state can nullify. And my argument is why, why can't the, the state? Yeah, I'm open to that.
yeah well maybe next time well is there is there anything else you want to cover um um yeah if you if you're particularly interested in education reform we got some great bills there and we got some great bills in criminal justice reform i mean criminal justice reform has been the whole game over the last like four to eight years in the montana legislature this year it's still important but it hasn't taken the front row seat that it has in previous uh but we have a great certificate of rehab bill we're excited about some bills that reduce uh that would incentivize um shortened sentencing for people get educated in prison or get educated on parole um, you know, just, just ways to try to emphasize people not to just, uh, come in and out of prison perpetually, but rather to reintegrate with society and stay drug and, and, and crime-free once they're out. Um, an important piece for us is the kind of the, both the savings to the taxpayer, as well as having, you know, good incentives for people to not make a life of crime, but rather if they make a mistake to that not be their final mistake and to be able to reintegrate to society. Cause we don't want to, have to pay to house them for the rest of their life. Um, that those sorts of uh, bills that are out there that we we're, we're, we feel good about. Um, and then we have, I think, a lot coming down when it comes to education reform. We have an education savings account bill for special needs students specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a tax credit scholarship reform uh, and a charter school bill coming down the line. Cool. That's really good to hear. Yeah. Well, if you want to just tell people where they can find you on social media, we can let you go. Yeah, you can find us at americansforprosperity.org. Uh, and uh, you can find our AFP Montana. And then uh, you can follow me at David R. Herbst on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, David. Thank you, Liam. Appreciate it. It's the weekend and we can let go. It's the full send and it's the get-go. It's the-